Copyright disclaimer. This episode of Story Communications with DJ Finley features audio from the following shows. Yes, Prime Minister, White Collar, and The Red Green Show. This audio is being used for educational purposes, and DJ Finley does not claim to own any rights to this audio whatsoever. As stated, this audio is being used for educational purposes only. Thank you. Welcome back to Story Communications with DJ Finley. I am, of course, your hostess, DJ Finley. So I think everybody's heard the phrase in writers' groups, show, don't tell, which I've noticed has sparked a lot of controversy when it comes to a lot of writers, because as I point out, when you are writing a story, you are telling a story. I mean, you're literally telling someone a story. So what do they mean by show, don't tell? Well, we're not actually going to be completely talking about this, but I wanted to bring this up because it kind of fits in with today's topic of action versus conflict. And you might have noticed that's the point of this podcast because it is in the title of the podcast. So (laughs) before I really get into it, I want to say one thing. Uh, And going over my notes for this podcast, I noticed that I spend a lot of time on conflict over action, and it kind of makes it sound as though I don't like action (laughs) in my stories, which is completely untrue. I don't say no to a good fight scene or, you know, bloodshed, beating up the character. In my own writing, I do a lot of mean things to my characters. I have lopped off limbs, I have uh, paralyzed a few of them, I have ripped out eyeballs, I have caused several to almost die from blood loss. I am not the nicest to my characters, which is one of the reasons why in my family there is literally a joke that you can tell who my favorite character is in my writing by who gets beaten up the most. (laughs) Or who goes through the most crap. So, I am not against beating the snot out of a character. Far from it. I completely approve of beating the snot out of a character, especially if it is a war-type story or you're trying to convey to me that your villain really is evil because a lot of people, they talk about their villain's lofty body count and they never show their villain's lofty body count, which really grinds my gears when people do that because, you know, that to me, that's that's telling that should not be done. Or it's like, if we're gonna have a villain with a high body count, you better show me the high body count. I want to see it. Or at least have some evidence of it. So I just wanted to get that out of the way when it comes to action versus conflict. Because one thing I hear a lot, and I and I heard it a lot going to a lot of writers' conventions because people keep talking about action. And the more I talked with writers, the more I realized they didn't quite know what they meant because usually when people think action, they think fight scenes. They think major movement that the characters are doing, like chase scenes, you know, people running around, all kinds of crazy stuff. And I think they get the idea from from films because films, especially nowadays, they have to keep everything moving at a fast pace so they don't bore the audience. And talking with a lot of people who, especially the people who constantly tell me how creative they are, they're always talking about how, you know, they have to keep it moving really fast because otherwise they're going to lose their audience. 
one person who said that to me, I, I responded with a, well, why don't you write a more interesting story? Because <laughs> the story they, they had was, was really dull. And so I asked them, why couldn't they just write a more interesting one? And they got really annoyed. So I've learned, don't say that <laughs> to someone who gives me the whole, you need to action to move the story. And I think people got this from filmmaking because films are a lot more action-packed. Marvel is a very good example of that. Gods of Egypt, very action-packed movie. The Mummy, very action-packed movie. And yet, they are not that fun to watch. I was bored out of my mind watching The Mummy when I wasn't holding a pillow over my face, screaming into it because I got so much wrong. So I kind of wanted to address this because I've noticed that everything I look into, when I look into how writers talk about writing action sequences, they always say, keep it short. And this is because action is actually really dull. Constant, like really long fight scenes that are just people punching each other, that gets really boring really fast. And I've noticed when I was doing some research for this podcast, writers are constantly saying, keep your fight scenes short for very good reasons. And I thought that was interesting because everyone keeps talking about how you got to keep moving the story forward. You, you move the story forward through character progression and plot progression. And that's why I wanted to spend most of the time in this podcast talking about conflict within the story. Because let's all be honest, that's the main reason people are picking up the story is the conflict, what's going to happen with the characters, constantly wanting to turn the page to find out what happens next. That isn't necessarily driven by slam out fights. So that's why I had to uh, defend action really quick in the opening of this podcast, because I'm going to sound very non-action-y for the rest of this podcast, <laughs> because we're mostly going to be talking about conflict and ways to use communications to enhance the conflict in a story. So as I mentioned, a lot of writers and some writers I've spoken to have all agreed that that action sequences should be kept short. And I agree with that. But a lot of writers are constantly talking about how they're afraid that if they don't put some action in the story, it's going to be boring. Well, one easy way to keep your scene from boring your audience is to keep it short. Present the need information and move on. That's, you know, keep it short, sweet, to the point. If anyone's ever noticed, I don't know if anyone's ever talked about this in writer's groups or conventions, but a page of script in a movie. A movie script is a minute of screen time. So just throwing that out there, which means that a page of a book should be about five to 20 minutes, depending on the scene that you're doing, because you can fit a lot more time onto one one page of a book than you can on a script, because each script is a minute of screen time, which means that every line should count for something. And I have a couple of examples. I have a few TV show examples to kind of drive my point home. However, just giving facts is super dull. And so we need to spice things up because one thing I've sort of noticed when I was going through a lot of authors' websites and reading what they had to say about keeping scenes interesting is everyone talks about every character should have their own goals and not just support the protagonist, something I completely agree on. However, they don't really give a lot of good explanations as to how to write dialogue or write a scene around that thought process. They just talk about how every character has their own motivations and, the own, and their own things that they're striving for, but they don't really bring up how to do it. 
They bring up where to find conflict and things like that, but they don't bring up how to write said conflict. So I'm going to give a couple of suggestions using communications, of course, because that is what the podcast is about. All right. So, and yes, you're going to think so little of me. I have kept basically all of my textbooks from college because basically, let's let's all be honest, a semester is not enough time to really soak in the information. I've actually reread my textbooks. You're all thinking so little of me right now. But one, uh, but this is one of the reasons why I keep my textbooks. This the textbook I'm going to be using today is actually one I use a lot, which is communication theory. And I absolutely love this textbook. I have gotten more suggestful writing help from this textbook than a lot of the books I've I bought on writing. So the theory is social judgment theory by Muzaffar Sharif. Like in this theory that Sharif had, there is an element called ego involvement. So basically, Sharif says ego involvement refers to how crucial an issue is in our lives. Is it central to our well-being? Do we think about it a lot? Does our attitude on the matter go a long way towards defining who we are? He continues to say, what our favorite position does. It anchors all our other thoughts about the topic. And so basically, you have a bunch of different, you kind of think of it as a, as a scale. So you got, you got your cute little anchor and you have the latitude of acceptance, which is kind of this little short barrier on either side of the anchor. And then you have latitude of rejection and latitude of, of non-commitment. Basically, the attitude of acceptance, which is everything within the area around your anchor, is the range of ideas that a person sees as reasonable or worthy of consideration. So you have your anchor opinion, and all of those ideas are what your character or the person sees as reasonable. They see these as, okay, I can live with this kind of a thing. Everything they're comfortable with. Everything in the latitude of rejection is the range of ideas that a person sees as unreasonable and objectionable. So that's everything that the character does not agree with. And the latitude of non-commitment, the range of ideas that a person sees as neither acceptable nor objectable. So this is like all the other ones because they have no commitment towards them. A really good show that tackles ego involvement really well is actually a BBC show that I have seen, oh, way too much. Let's be honest here. It is a show called Yes Minister and Yes Prime Minister. The reason I have to emphasize both of those is because the first season is Yes Minister and the second season is Yes Prime Minister. I think they're seasons. I don't remember. But the main character, Jim Hacker, goes from being a minister to being a prime minister within the show. And a lot of the problems are caused by ego involvement. So I'm going to play a clip for you from the show. And it is... I'm not entirely sure which episode it's from, but it's from, yes, Prime Minister. I've seen the show way too many times. I can't tell any episode apart now because it all just blends together. But this is a conversation between Jim Hacker and Humphrey, Sir Humphrey uh, Appleby. And they're talking about their positions on smoking and what to do about it. And so we're going to listen to this clip. Ah, Humphrey. I was just wondering, did you have an interesting chat with Dr. Thorne? Yes. 
He proposed the elimination of smoking. <laughs> By a campaign of mass hypnosis, perhaps. By raising tobacco taxes sky high and simultaneously banning all advertising, including a point of sale. <laughs> Don't you think his position is admirably moral? Moral, perhaps, but extremely silly. <laughs> no man in his right mind could possibly contemplate such a proposal. <laughs> I'm contemplating. Yes, of course, Prime Minister. Please. Don't misunderstand me. It is quite right, of course, that you should contemplate all proposals that come from your government, but no sane man would ever support it. I'm supporting it. And quite right, too. <laughs> the only little problem is that the tax on tobacco is a major source of revenue for the government. It's also a major source of death from killer diseases. Yes, indeed, but no definite causative link has ever been proved, has the it? Statistics, statistics are unarguable. You can prove anything with statistics. Even the truth. <laughs> <laughs> Smoking-related diseases cost the NHS £165 million a year. Yes, but we've been into that. It has been shown that if those extra 100,000 people had lived to a ripe old age, they would have cost us even more in pensions and social security than they did in medical treatment. So financially speaking, it's unquestionably better that they continue to die at about the present rate. When cholera killed 30,000 people in 1833, we got the Public Health Act. When smog killed 2,500 people in 1952, we got the Clean Air Act. A commercial drug kills half a dozen people and we get it withdrawn from sale. Cigarettes kill 100,000 people a year. And what do we get? Four billion pounds a year. 25,000 jobs in the tobacco industry. A flourishing cigarette export business helping our balance of trade. 250,000 jobs related to tobacco. News agents, packaging, transport. These figures are just guesses. No, they're government's... They're facts. See, so your statistics are facts and my facts are merely statistics. Prime Minister, I'm on your side. I'm merely giving you some of the arguments that you will encounter. Thank you, Humphrey. I'm so glad to know that we shall have support such as yours. <laughs> the Prime Minister, it will be pointed out that the tobacco companies are great sponsors of sport. Now, where would the BBC sports programmes be if cigarette companies couldn't advert... couldn't sponsor the events that they do? <laughs> Humphrey, we're talking about 100,000 deaths a year. Yes, but cigarette taxes pay for a third of the cost of the National Health Service. We're saving many more lives than we otherwise could because of those smokers who voluntarily lay down their lives for their friends. <laughs> Is a national benefactor. <laughs> so as you can hear, <laughs> uh, so as you can hear, uh, Humphrey is on the side of smoking. We should allow smoking, and we should not skyrocket the tax to outrageous and unreasonable degrees. And Hacker is on the side of we should encourage the population to stop smoking. And both of them give their the reasons for this, but they have their own reasons for doing this, which comes from the ego involvement. Hacker is throughout this entire show. He is constantly worried about making a positive difference in England, as well as getting as many popular votes as possible. That is his main driving force. And so everything that sounds like a good, wonderful, healthy idea is something he is constantly going for which is what causes friction between him and Humphrey, because Humphrey has been in the politics game much longer. I believe he's called a civil servant. I believe that's the correct term. And he is in charge of making sure that Hacker doesn't succeed in his crazy schemes, basically. 
And so it is in his best interest to talk the minister, or in this case, the prime minister, out of doing things that would be seen as unacceptable by the people in government. And he brings up all of his reasons for that. And the dialogue is absolutely hilarious. The two of them are doing nothing more than spurting facts as to why the other one is wrong. And it is hilarious because each character, each of the two characters has their goal. Humphrey's goal is to talk the prime minister out of going forward with this scheme. And Hacker's goal is to go over Humphrey and be like, no, we should do this because of all of these reasons. Because these two characters have an ego investment, Humphrey has to make sure that he has the minister to do whatever he wants. And Hacker wants to go over Humphrey. They Both of their egos are invested in this argument and what they think should be done. Humphrey is all for, we need to keep the government as it is because there is no reason to change it and all the laws the way that they are. And Hacker is all about, we need to change things for the better and we need to make everything better for Britain and the people who live in Britain. Ego involvement also also gets a lot of impact from the expectancy. Expectancy is what people predict will happen rather than what they want. It involves context, like the culture of the situation, the relationship between the characters and the communicator's characteristics, such as the character's gender, age, upbringing, experiences, and things like that. And Yes Minister has all of these three things that evolve around expectancy. Because you have the culture. The culture is British culture, but more specifically, it's British political culture and the culture within the politics at number 10. That is the culture that the story is involved with. The relationship between Humphrey and Hacker, because Humphrey and Hacker have worked together for quite a bit of time now, and they both know the counter-arguments. They have a pretty good idea of the counter-arguments the other one will suggest. And they know the other one's going to go behind the other one's back. The end of the communicator characteristics, you have Humphrey, who's been in this for many, many years, and he knows everything. He's experienced. He's been sort of molded by the culture of, of the British political system. And then you have Hacker, who has not spent as much time, and he is closer to the everyman and wishes to do something to help them while he's in this position of power. So you have these two people who, they basically are throughout the entire show, and I highly recommend people watch this show because it is a really good show. Like I said, I've watched it way too many times, but they both expect the, they both predict what will happen in talking, and sometimes their predictions are wrong because, you know, Humphrey is hoping that the minister is not contemplating it, and the prime minister is. He hopes the prime minister won't be taking it seriously, which the prime minister is, and so his uh, prediction is not the one that he wants. And so his prediction and his wants don't coincide. Okay, so that is ego involvement. And so basically with that one, when crafting a conversation around ego involvement, it's basically two characters giving their sides of the issue. Two characters sitting down for the most part. They could be walking. I don't care what they're doing. But these are two characters, maybe three characters, giving different perspectives and different arguments on one matter. And their arguments should have something to do with their ego and why they think that something is right or wrong. So that is the 
ego involvement. And I've noticed no one really talks about that when they're talking about creating conflict within a story. When that's actually quite a big major player, because let's be honest, a lot of your decisions or a lot of decisions people make in real life and should translate over into stories is made by your ego and how involved you are or involved the character is in a matter. Especially with a lot of people's stories when they're constantly talking about like wars and fighting and or the good guys fighting against the bad guys. Well, all right. Yeah, you. we assume that the characters we're following are the good guys because you want us to sympathize with them. But I've noticed no one really brings up why they're the good guys other than the bad guys are doing bad things. Because usually if you're involved in something, you're involved with it because your ego pushes you to be involved in it. Because you see something as, oh, I need to to fight for that, or I need to get invested in that, or I don't care about that, or your arguments about this are wrong, my arguments about this are right. Because everything that Humphrey suggests to Hacker, and everything that Hacker suggests to Humphrey, is in the latitude of rejection. Because remember, the latitude of rejection is the range of ideas that a person sees as unreasonable or objectionable. And so to Hacker, Humphrey talking about how, oh, these these people who, like, we save so much more money with these people dying, we uh, have so many more jobs in the tobacco industry, we have all of these reasons to keep tobacco and keep people smoking, he sees that as unreasonable. So that is in his latitude of rejection, while for Humphrey, Hacker's arguments are in his latitude of rejection because Hacker is trying to convince people to not indulge in a very life-threatening activity, which is smoking. So that is the ego involvement. All right, there are actually others we are going to talk about. Because, you know, ego involvement, that's good, and I think it's a really good conflict creator for stories, especially if you need to, in your story, if you need to bring up an issue. Because one thing I've sort of noticed when I was, I was reading one book, I'm not going to say which one it was, but I was reading this one book where I think the writer was trying to make themselves sound really deep and cool by having these two characters basically bonk heads in this one conversation. But it was really clear that they didn't really understand ego involvement because the characters basically shut each other down. Well, one of the characters shuts the conversation down relatively quickly with some decent reasons, but the other character lets the other character shut them down because they they didn't really fight back and they didn't really play with the latitudes of rejection, acceptance, and non-commitment. And and because of this, this scene, which should be a really interesting and really, really good scene, bringing these characters into conflict with each other fell really flat because they didn't play with those, those latitudes. And so when writing a scene with ego involvement, it's a good idea to actually think about both sides of the argument. And I know a lot of people don't like to do that. They don't like to think about or write down arguments that the other side would have. They just want to focus in on everything that the characters, the good guys in their stories, believe in without realizing that the people who are opposing them have their reasons for believing what they are believing. So when writing a conversation of ego involvement, it is it's a really good idea, and I've done this a couple times, where you sort of sit down and think about, all right, this character is arguing for this. Why? And so write down all of their reasons. And you also need to write down the opposing side's arguments as to why they are saying no to the other person's arguments. And that that is where the, the drama comes in with this sort of a conversation, is the two characters are 
at odds with each other for reasons that they deem reasons to fight for it. And they think the other character has unreasonable reasons for why they are arguing for their case. So that it does take a bit of work, but it does make a really compelling scene. All right, let's move on. In the same textbook, because this textbook is awesome and I love it, and I've gotten so much more information out of just reading it on my own time, the next one is called... (laughs) It's a really stupid name. L-U-U-U-U-T-T. And it's an acronym. The label to the seven types of stories identified in the in this one model and the model is the coordinated management of meaning so i don't know how many of you have listened to the podcast before this one but in that podcast i kind of talked about communication perspective which basically talks about how communication is not just a tool for exchanging ideas it And information, it makes how we see ourselves, relationships, organizations, communities, cultures, everything. And because communication really does make up how the world around you works and how you perceive the world, which means it also does the same thing to your characters. So in this model, you have seven labels, and each label is important. The first ones are the lived stories, and these are stories that we actually did or are doing. This is what actually happened. And so this is the one that the writer needs to know. The writer needs to know what actually happened in the situation. That's the writer's job. And so this one is talking about something that the characters can never have a full understanding of. Because let's be honest, no one has a really good grasp on what actually happened because most people are going to see things or situations differently than other people. So that's why I'm saying the writer needs to know this. The characters do not. The characters don't know what actually happened or took place. The second one is unknown stories. This is information that is missing. When you're writing a conflict using this model, which is actually, this model is actually one of my favorite models to write conflict around. As a writer, you need to kind of sit there, and I've done this a lot, so yeah. You need to figure out what is not told. What is the information that is missing? And are you going to bring this information forward or are you going to keep it missing and mysterious? This one actually, (laughs) oh, fun story. So in one of my experiences at a writer's meeting, somebody actually said something that I thought was just so funny. Uh, I probably should not have found it as funny as it was, but I asked them, why are you spending so much time on this one part of your story? And (laughs) they said the funniest thing. They said, well, in movie making, the most important part, the most important thing in a story is whatever the camera spends the most time on. I almost died laughing. I, I tried, really, I worked really hard not to bust up laughing, but I was like, where did you hear that? Who told you that? <laughs> because the most important part in a story or in a movie is whatever is on camera and whatever is off camera. That sounds really contradictory, but let me explain. So when I was in one of my classes, my teacher, who was going over the importance of camera work and storytelling and things, was talking about how the real secret to storytelling, and this is where a lot of storytellers, a lot of filmmakers either succeed or fail, is knowing what should be on camera and what should not be on camera, because both are essential to the story, because 
the information that the storyteller chooses not to tell the audience is just as crucial as the information that the storyteller chooses to tell the audience and chooses to show them. Usually when something's not on camera, it's there's usually a couple of reasons for why it's not. One is it would have dragged down the story. It would have dragged on the runtime. It would have possibly been boring. You couldn't film it particularly well. There was no good way of making it look good. So you'll generally have the characters refer to something off screen. Another reason is you can't give it justice. If it's something in the story that that would be very difficult to show, that's another one that is usually off camera. Not that interesting or important information. So information that the creator knows, but the audience doesn't exactly need to know. So the teacher kind of elaborated on this and was talking about how when you're filmmaking, you need to try and know as much about the story, you need to know more about the story than what you're telling to your audience. It's important to know more about the story than what's actually being shown on screen. You need to know everything about these characters' backgrounds, you know, everything about what happened before the story started, and basically know what happens after the story ends. So that uh, when you end the story, you can kind of place an idea into the reader, into the viewer's mind as to what probably happened after the credits rolled to these characters. Okay, that's unknown stories, which is what writers should know, but the characters do not know. Okay, the next one is untold stories. See, what we choose not to say. This is an interesting one, because I've noticed that some writers don't like to use this one because they feel like their characters have to say everything. And they don't seem to realize that a character not saying something is just as important as a character saying something, if not more so. Because if a character chooses not to say something, then they are choosing to withhold this information and they usually have a good reason to withhold this information. Or they think they have a good reason to withhold this information. Or they really do have a good reason to withhold this information. And that's another reason why it's it's important to know what your character knows or thinks, going back to ego involvement, thinks about a situation because that also involves how they're going to present the information. Remember, going back to the Yes Prime Minister clip, Humphrey is completely trying to back up his argument. He's going to give his stats. He's going to give his facts. He's going to give his side, and he's not going to completely validate or validate at all hackers' side of it because that's because he doesn't want to tell those stories. Those are stories untold of what Hacker is talking about. This is also how news media works. Fun fact, you know, uh, media, especially things like uh, news, they hold back on information to give. And so that's another good thing to consider is what information is your media choosing to tell and what information is your media choosing to hold within the story? So interesting, interesting thoughts. The next one, number four, is unheard stories. What we say that isn't heard or acknowledged. So this one is talking about characters or situations where a person says things and the other person does not hear said thing or acknowledge the thing that is said. Another good way to use this is to have it where one character is trying to reach out to another character, but that character kind of shrugs them off or doesn't acknowledge their attempts to reach out to them. Those are the unheard. Untellable stories. Ooh. Untellable stories that are forbidden or too painful to tell. I love this one. (laughs) 
All right. Untellable stories. It is different from untold stories. Remember, untold is what we choose to hold back. Untellable is forbidden or too painful to talk about. Now, they sound very similar on the surface, but let's dive into this one. Untellable stories is where in storytelling, you can have the most character depth without saying anything because you could have it in a conversation. And it's actually, I couldn't find a clip of this. I was really mad that I couldn't find a clip of this. There probably is somewhere. I just didn't have time to look for it as well as I I tried. I did spend like half an hour looking for it. But there is a scene in one of my favorite TV shows called Leverage where the members of the group Leverage find out that one of the members, Elliot, used to work for the bad guy that they're trying to take down. And he talks about how working for this bad guy made him do things that, you know, he just, you know, he couldn't forgive himself for doing. And one of the characters, Parker, asks him, what did he do? And Elliot tells her, don't ask me that, Parker, because if you ask me, I'm going to tell you. So please don't ask me. And I love that scene because that is untellable stories, because what happened to Elliot was just so traumatizing and painful, he can't talk about it. And so he forbids himself from saying anything. And things like that, I mean, I wish writers would use these more. (laughs) I love untellable stories. I I think I use them too much in my writing, because I love untellable stories. It just, without coming up with something, it adds a ton of depth to a character and a scene, because you suddenly realize, oh man, there is something... There is something else, you know, on the bottom line of this, and you don't have to tell it. In fact, don't tell it. Please, if, if you put in an untellable story, do not tell it. Because the point of the untellable stories is it cannot be told. If it gets told, it's no longer untellable, is it? That's one really easy way to up the stakes is to bring in untellable stories, especially with a very loved, right, with a very beloved character like Elliot Spencer in Leverage, because I think he's like, most people's favorite characters. He's one of my favorite characters, but I, I love all of them. So that's number five. Number six is telling, the manner in which we communicate. So this one kind of goes around with the how we tell or how the character tells the story that is being told. How are they presenting it? How much information are they giving it? Now, these don't have to be long paragraphs of information or dialogue. It can be very short, sweet, to the point. And they can be semi-cryptic, but cryptic in an understanding way to kind of bring up how the characters tell each other the story that they wish to convey. And stories told. What we say we are doing. So stories told is, so the told is basically what we say we are doing. So this is more of the here and now one where it's like, it's, it's, it's basically the wrap up of all the stories put together. So basically the point of this model The whole, I don't want to say it again, the L-U-U-U-U-T-T model is not to find the correct story or the correct interpretation as much as it enlarging a person's awareness of how complex the social worlds are. The more aware a person is to the complexity of social worlds, the greater their capacity for holding information, holding frustrating situations and people more compassionately. So that's what the model is for. But as writers, we use it more as a means of telling a story to get the most conflict. But you love communications. The whole point of the communications textbook is to teach us how to communicate more effectively. And I'm using it to create more conflict in stories. I am a bad communications major. 
All right, so let's put the model to work, shall we? I'm going to play a short clip from White Collar. And this clip is Neil Caffrey asking Peter to help him basically get out of jail, but he's still in jail. Listen to the clip. How did you know? Come on, Peter. That's what I do. How upset were the Canadians? <laughs> oh, very. Well, as upset as Canadians can get. All right, so I agreed to a meeting. What meeting? I know why you call him the Dutchman. Like the ghost ship, he disappears whenever you get close. How do you know anything about him? You know my life. You don't think I know yours? Did you get the birthday cards? Nice touch. You've been after the Dutchman almost as long as you were after me. I'll help you catch him. Really? Really? How, how does that work? You want to be prison pen pals? You can get me out of here. There's case law. Precedent. I can be released into your custody. Nice. This is, this is very nice. But you're right. I do know you. And I know the second you're out, you'll take off after Kate. Peter, I'm not going to run. GPS tracking anklet. The new ones are tamper-proof, never been skipped on. There's always a first time. Think about it. Sorry, Neil. Nice try. Okay, so this one is, I love this scene. Actually, I love this whole show. White Collar, as I said, this clip is from White Collar, is probably one of my favorite shows. And fun fact, it also helped me pass art class. <laughs> yes, you can actually fail art class, but I didn't because I watched White Collar. So within this really short exchange, this really awesome exchange between the main characters, Neil and Peter, this is Neil trying to get taken into Peter's custody and work for him as a consultant. There is a lot of the, this model going on. You have what actually happened with lived stories, which the creators of the show know exactly what happened, but they're not going to reveal everything. It mostly focuses on untold stories, what the characters choose not to say. You might, you might have noticed that there's a lot of information not given in this conversation without, while well, still giving a ton of information. You have Neil talking to Peter about the case Peter's currently working on, which is the Dutchman. And Neil does not tell Peter, you know, how he knows all this stuff. He just tells him, you know, my life. Don't think I don't know yours. And so those are untold stories. There's kind of a little bit of unheard stories, but not exactly. Because remember, the ending of that scene is Peter telling him, nice try, but not going to happen. That's kind of falls into the unheard story because he's not acknowledging what Neil is doing, but we find out he's actually acknowledging it. So it's sort of an unheard, but not quite, but it's using the the one part. There's storytelling, how they tell the story. And it can also, it brings up the fact that Neil and Peter know each other really, really well. And that's like I was talking about, goes into lived stories. They have experienced each other, but there is still a ground of unknown stories between Neil and Peter, because Peter doesn't know everything about Neil, and Neil doesn't know everything about Peter just yet, but they they have experienced each other, which falls into the lived stories and what is actually known between the two of them. So I love I love this show. Basically, if you really want a show that teaches a more in-depth look into conflict using communications, this is the show to binge watch. 
And not just watch it once, watch it twice. Because trust me, this is a show that needs to be watched twice. There's so much you miss. At least I missed a lot of it the first time. And you you have more of a chance to see the little intricate things that the writers did when you watch it a second time, which is really, really cool. And so that's that's the white collar, which I highly, highly recommend that show. Okay, so on the last bit, I want to talk about Get Creative with what your characters say. This one has a lot to do with knowing your characters and knowing what the characters are going to say or what the characters are going to do, or having a better idea of what they're going to do. Because you as the writer should know the characters better than anybody else. You are the creator, you're the person who came up with them, and so it, therefore it is your responsibility, and mine, to make sure that they say things that only they would say. And this comes into making sure that your characters are very distinctly different. And I've noticed in some of the writers I've encountered, this is a problem a lot of them have, is they give their characters a couple of different traits and that's it. And there's like nothing different about them. So before I fully get into this, I want to play a clip from The Red Green Show, episode 284, Mr. Clean, part of their 2005 season. Bit of a setback this week up at the lodge. Dinky Peterson had come up with a new recipe for pickled eggs au gratin. Uh, but he was shut down by the Environmental Protection Agency. Yeah. We have to clean up the lodge. We did. No, not just sort it into heaps by smell. Clean. The Ontario Tourist Board is coming into this area. They're going to be inspecting all the resorts, you know, so they can rate them for their brochure. And we cannot afford to have another rating of dangerous to all life forms. What are you talking about, Harold? Last year, we got three stars. Those were X's. We're the only triple X rated lodge in the entire province. That's why we had so few people here, you know, and the ones who did come, we didn't want. Well, who cares, Harold? We get along fine up here without all those yuppie families coming up with their kiwi suntan lotion and their bottled water. You know what? I feel like they're from another planet. Earth? Red, you ought to see Caribou Lodge. It's like the Ritz. The hotel or the cracker? the resort, they've cleaned everything up. There's no propane tanks piled up everywhere. There's no car engines hanging from the trees. There's no empties on the roof. Well, they're just trying to suck up to the tourist board. I know that. And they told me to tell you that they're gonna kick our butt in the ratings. They're bragging that they're gonna make Possum Lodge look like a dump. Well, don't you worry. You beat them to that. Harold, we beat them to almost everything. We hardly ever lose a competition to Caribou Lodge. Okay, well, then you guys better decide to pitch in. Clean up this no, place. No, get- <laughs> no, we don't need to pitch in. All we gotta do is hire a, a cleaning, cleaning lady. Is that what you were really going to say? I guess not. Because that's demeaning, sexist, and politically incorrect. <laughs> Man, it's getting so hard to be me. Good. Oh. <laughs> Okay, so this is another show I highly recommend watching. And I love this show because it's it does a really good job of not leaning on like predictable dialogue. And I'll get to that in a second. But what's really great about The Red Green Show is that it does a really good job of having very distinctive different characters who have these really fun ways of like snapping back and giving a fun, unique way to listen to the dialogue. I mean, that's a very short clip that's part of the opening of the of the show. And 
you already kind of get a really good sense as to who Harold, Dalton, and Red are as characters and people, especially if you've been watching the show for a long time. But even as someone who hasn't been watching the show, you still get a really good idea as to who they are as people, different individuals in the story. So what do I mean by predictable dialogue? Uh, following predictable dialogue gets boring real quick and gives less information about the characters and the situation. Predictable dialogue is basically whatever the reader can predict the next character is going to say. On the one hand, predictable dialogue makes the book faster to read because your reader doesn't need to pay that close of attention to the words, they can just sort of skim through it. On the other hand, predictable dialogue is super boring and gives the reader absolutely no inner look into the characters or the situation that the characters are dealing with. When people are talking about, you know, I need to get this information out, and I tell them, okay, well, try and find a way to say as much information in as few words as possible while making those words as engaging as possible. And usually when I say that, I get this deer in the headlights looks and a couple of people have actually told me like, that's impossible. You can't do that. <laughs> and I usually point out to them, yes, you actually can. I have noticed that people don't like it when I recommend this show because I've learned that the red green show is a required, is an acquired taste, which apparently I have the acquired taste for it. And most people do not, which is really sad because the red green show is brilliant at writing. Like, Every joke lands, every situation, every scene is not boring. Like there's no there's never there's never a dull moment in the Red Green show. And it's only like 22-ish minutes long each episode, and they have aged remarkably well. Actually, all of these shows have aged remarkably well. But the Red Green show is just a bunch of old middle-aged men talking, except for Harold, he's the younger guy of the of the lodge. And so it's just a bunch of middle-aged guys talking about lodge stuff, which doesn't sound particularly interesting when you think about it, but the writers have gone out of their way to make the information as short, to the point, and engaging as possible, and you get an idea as to each of these characters and who they are just within the short interaction exchange between Red, Harold, and Dalton. Okay, so to sum up, let's go over what we discussed, and that is... Every writer is going to tell you that every character should have their own goals and not just support the protagonist. Yes, but here are some ways to ensure that the other character's goals are met and acknowledged while not boring your audience at the same time. Ego involvement. How involved is this topic with your character and what is their stance on it? And how much are they going to fight for it? What about the other character's arguments are, is considered unreasonable to them, and why do they think it is unreasonable? Again, yes, minister and yes, prime minister are great places to find examples of this because that's basically the entire show. This deals with expectancy, what people predict will happen rather than what they want. Allow your characters to predict the outcome of the conversation or predict the next move of the character that they are in conflict with. And, you know, that, I guess that's a good way to spark conflict because either they're going to try and, you know, combat that or they're going to go with their argument anyway. Expectancy involves things like context. Where is this conflict taking place? What is the culture behind this conflict? Like in Yes Minister, it is the British government. That is the culture, is the British government specifically. The relationship between the two characters in conflict with each other and the communicator's characteristics. What about the communicator affects the way they see these, this argument and the situation? 
There is the L-U-U-U-U-T-T model, which is really annoying to say, but that's the only name I have for it. Or White Collar is like the epitome show for this. Actually, so is the Red Green Show, now that I think about it. Both White Collar and the Red Green Show and Leverage are like the best examples. And if you really want to get good at this model, those are the shows to binge watch multiple times because everything in the dialogue, especially White Collar and the Red Green Show, evolve around this model. And let's go over what those, what the acronym stands for one more time so you can write them down because these are good to have. And I'll probably put a, on my website, I have a website. I'm probably going to put up, type up a printable with all of this information on it. And I will get that up as soon as I can. So the first L is lived stories. This is what actually happened. The second one is unknown stories, information that is missing, which the writer should have, but the characters should not. Three is untold stories, what the character chooses not to say. Four is unheard stories, what the characters say that isn't heard or acknowledged. Five, untellable stories, stories that are forbidden or too painful to tell. Six is storytelling, the manner in which the characters communicate. And the seventh one is the stories told, what the characters say uh, they are doing. So that is a excellent model and that can also bring down a lot of the really long and boring description scenes. And lastly, Get creative. Really dive into what the characters' personalities are like and how they're going to interact with the other characters. This also goes into communicator characteristics. Teenagers are going to act differently from 50-year-old characters. It's just a fact. Teenagers are very different from 50-year-olds. So it's important to make sure that they would respond differently. A character who is a little more wild would respond differently from somebody who is very organized and collected. So I hope that was helpful. Like I said, I will probably put up a printable for this on my website as soon as I can. So keep an eye out for that. And I should probably make a watch and read list on shows and books that I think do a really good communication job. So I'll probably get onto that. So keep an eye out for that on my website. And I hope you found this helpful. Again, I am not trying to put down action. Action is good. I highly recommend it. I am very big on action. However, action is not the whole story. The story is about what happens with the characters and what happens to the characters. And that is where the main focus should be. So I hope that was helpful. I hope you got something out of it. Remember, keep your action scenes short, sweet, and to the point as well as the dialogue information scenes. Every scene should count, and every character's interactions and reactions need to count as well. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoy this content, make sure to follow on your favorite streaming platform. For all news and information about upcoming shows and what I'm up to, make sure to follow me on Facebook. If you wish to contact me to tell me either your thoughts on the episode you heard, or to give me suggestions on future podcasts, or maybe you'd like to co-host with me in a future podcast, you can either message me through Anchor, Facebook, or you can email me at Series of Lives Inc. All links are in the description box below. Make it a great day, and I will talk to you later. Bye!